кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... годом вас. С новым веком. Украина's top military commander said this week that his troops are locked in a stalemate with Russia and that no deep and beautiful breakthrough is on the horizon. In an interview with The Economist, General Valery Zaluzhny said breaking the existing deadlock would require technological advances to give Ukraine air superiority and increase the effectiveness of its artillery fire. And if this does not happen, Zaluzhny fears his forces could be drawn into years of bloody World War I-style trench warfare, a war of attrition in which Russia would have the advantage due to the sheer size of its army. So how worried should we be? Well, I've got just the two guests to help us break it all down, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic in the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn is the one and only James Scher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Welcome back to The Vertical, James. Thank you for having me back. Thanks for coming back and also joining us from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, the senior correspondent at Yahoo News and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also the author of the book ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror, and is currently working on a new book about Russia's GRU. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. Thanks, Brian. So the Zaluzhny interview and the accompanying nine-page essay in The Economist certainly got my attention, and I understand it got both of yours as well. Um, it, it comes in a fraught time for Ukraine. Kiev's worried that the Israel-Hamas war will divert Western attention away. The U.S. Congress continues to dither about new, a new military aid package for Ukraine, and support for assisting Ukraine is actually waning in much of the West. James, how did you interpret the Zaluzhny article, both in terms of what it says about the state of the war and what the general is trying to accomplish in terms of messaging and politics here? I interpret it differently from the mainstream media in Washington. Um, Valery Zaluzhny is a soldier's soldier. He's not a politician. He's not responsible for the fact that this highly uh, professional and objective assessment very impressive and comprehensive one, has landed in a toxic political environment in Washington and in some other places. Now, I don't think he was saying that success depends so much on technological advances, but on technological advantages. And he was saying more than that. He's not saying we have to dream up new technology. Technologies he's talking about are there. He itemizes them. What is needed are two things. That the appropriate synergies have to be found between these different components and systems to produce military results at operational scales. And there needs to be more of them. That's what he's saying. Uh, and what he is, what he says we have to aim for is to break the positional warfare, which is where the, what the conflict is congealed into. And he's not defeatist about it. He's not negative. He's very sober, very realistic, and projects confidence. And to me, one of the most refreshing things is there's none of the nonsense about silver bullets. Oh, just give us. F-16s and things will change. Give us this, give us that. Um, so I take comfort from this assessment, and uh, and we should all take comfort from the fact that this is the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, so that's my that's off the cut. But one more thing I would just add. If there is a message here, it's very clear. If 
we want Ukraine to survive and remain a state in the proper sense of the term uh, with its own government, its own capacity, its own right to make decisions. This is what we have to do. Ukraine didn't choose this war. The West didn't choose this war. This is the war we have. This is what we have to do if these are our objectives. And I suspect later on in the program we will discuss those who are critical of these objectives. And we'll, we'll, I'll come back to that. But those are that's my that's my immediate answer. So that's it. So you see no political uh, objective here whatsoever. Just an honest assessment of the state of the state of affairs on the ground by by a general, uh, by the by the commanding general of the Ukrainian armed forces. Michael, how did how did you how did you interpret this? Because um, I, I I tend to agree with James, although I also, as James pointed out, said this did land in a very toxic political environment here in Washington. Yeah, and I think Zeluzhny is well aware of that environment. I mean, the Ukrainians are pretty good at strategic communications. And, you know, Zelensky's last visit to Washington, D.C., notwithstanding, they have taken the temperature of the West at every turn in this conflict so far. Um, and I don't think it was a coincidence that this interview appeared when it did. Um, I did read the paper, the nine-page uh, assessment. I agree completely with James that, you know, Zeluzhny is a soldier's soldier. It's probably the only person in the Ukrainian military who rates Valery Gerasimov more highly, I think, than the Russian military does and has read everything that he's ever written. Uh, and and he, he actually estimates the enemy in a way that um, is perhaps unusual among Ukrainians who tend to deride Russia's lack of uh, military prowess or professionalism. Um, he, he quite rightly, I think, puts paid to that notion and says, you know, they have adapted, they have learned from their mistakes, uh, and they do pose a, a formidable threat, particularly in, in their entrenched defenses in the South. He also notes that um, he made a miscalculation, which was to believe that killing upwards of 150,000 soldiers in the space of less than two years would be sufficient to end a war. Uh, in most other countries, normal countries, it certainly probably it would have that effect, but not in Russia. So um, he's taking a bit of self-criticism there. Um, look, the, the the difficulty I see with both the interview and his assessment, although the assessment is not going to be read by as many people as will have seen the Economist interview, uh, is that if there was any uh, element of trying to tweak the political establishment in the United States and make a case for not just more of the material that has been provided, but new forms of it, um, necessarily F-16s, but, you know, more sophisticated drones. Um, I, I'd like to discuss at length how the Ukrainians have made ample use of this technology to make up for the shortfall that they have in conventional aerial combat capability. I, I been studying this uh, for several weeks now. But anyway, um, the, the problem that, that I think he will face is this has only uh, given um, more ammunition, as it were, to the MAGA Republican element in Congress, which sees this war as a stalemate, as a quagmire, and even worse than that, as something that is strategically negligible for the United States. We have no vested interest in it. Why should we carry on? We've spent X billions of dollars and you know, even though people don't seem to understand what presidential drawdown authority actually means and refers to in terms of giving, right. you know, equipment that is in warehouses and set to be uh, disposed of because it's past its sell-by date, which is the bulk of, of American security assistance to Ukraine, doesn't matter. Um, there has been a, a, a very severe narrative propounded in recent months that uh, essentially Ukraine is the welfare queen of the world and that America is is keeping it aloft. And this is a very dangerous uh, phenomenon. One that, I, I mean, I've talked to congressional staffers from the Republican Party, I should say the institutional Republican Party that's still very internationalist and committed to a Ukrainian victory. And they tell me uh, every time they sit down with the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, they present a whole suite of evidence. You know, here's what we've spent. Here's how we account for it. Here's the results. Uh, 4% of our annual defense budget has 
hollowed out upwards of 60% of Russia's combat effectiveness, a remarkable return on investment. And the response is always, doesn't matter, we'll never support Ukraine. So my fear is, as you mentioned, even among the Republican electorate, not about uh, legislators, but the electorate, support is waning. Uh, it's higher among Democrats. But now, as you pointed out, with this conflagration in the Middle East, attention is being diverted and Biden's efforts to try and twin security assistance for Israel and Ukraine don't seem to be as successful as, as you know, I, I think that was a wise political calculation, but it doesn't seem to be going in that direction. Um, and so, yes, I think it, it now is the time to not panic, but be slightly more worried about mm -hmm. the future of, of American support for this. And the House this week, of course, just decoupled Ukrainian aid from, exactly. uh, from aid to Israel. Now, exactly. my sense and the buzz here in Washington is that the Senate's going to jam the House. Basically, Mitch McConnell's going to going to write the bill he wants, and it's going to have both in there. Um, and then they're going to put the ball back in the House's court. But this being the U.S. Congress, this could drag on in time. It's not a luxury that we we all enjoy right now. Uh, James, you look like you wanted to say something. What I can't. Um, I can't properly enter uh, the very necessary conversation you're having because I'm not there and I don't do that. But if I focus on the uh, the strategic issues and the interests, we do have, by the way, a lot of visitors to Estonia from Congress, and we have. Uh, mm -hmm. We do have very serious discussions. Um, you know, I, what, what puzzles me is that I do not see the administration taking the offensive intellectually. Mm -hmm. The tendency simply to repeat old uh, the old slogans in a more emphatic way. Now, um, Ukraine is a welfare case. Was Britain not entirely dependent on the United States before the U.S. came into the war, after France's defeat? Of course it was. It was dependent on the United States throughout the entire Second World War. We judged that to be a compelling strategic interest, we aiding we, because I'm both American and British. Um, the, so if it is not a cardinal interest of the United States, after a 30-year investment in the whole enterprise of defending Ukraine's sovereignty and independence and the process upholding the international legal regime and the UN Charter, then what is the alternative? Uh, none of these people have defined, none of these people have identified an alternative. Do they really think that if Ukraine, and I would not say that were defeated and destroyed, I'd say destroyed and defeated because until you destroy Ukraine, you will not defeat them. How on earth will that persuade the Chinese or the Iranians that the United States has the will, the tenacity, and the courage to prevail against them? How does this, what argument are they actually making? Now, I haven't, I haven't seen anyone take the offensive on this, and I and I think it's necessary. And as Mike mentioned, it's three to five percent of the DRG budget, without the loss of a single American, a single American uh, citizen, an American uh, soldier. So, I think, uh, but you, you have to be willing intellectually to pull this apart. And I don't, from where I sit, both in the UK and in Estonia, I don't see that happening in Washington. 
So there, there have been efforts uh, uh, to, to basically push us. I mean, the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Makarova, is traveling around the country. If I'm not mistaken, she was just in Kentucky doing a joint event with Mitch McConnell, basically in a red state, basically trying to shore up support. She, she's, she, she's doing a, 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 a lot of work here. I would like to see out of Europe what I would like to see, because most Americans don't know that the European Union has given more to Ukraine than the United States. You hear one of the talking points, one of the favorite talking points of opponents of aid to Ukraine is that, well, the Europeans need to step up. Well, guess what? The Europeans have stepped up to a larger extent than we have stepped up, actually. And as a percentage of GDP, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland are doing better than we are. Um, and the, German, the Germans have overtaken the Brits in, in security yeah. assistance, despite but nobody know. But nobody knows this. Uh, and and right. this is I, I was speaking with some Estonian officials in town the other day about this, that we really there really needs to be an information offensive on this in simple pie graphs, you know, not in EU bureaucratic jargon, but in simple pie and bar charts showing uh, every member of Congress and, and, and the American public. Just what's going on here, because Europe has stepped up. In fact, they're giving more than the United States. James, did you want to say something or Michael, I, I, I lost track? Yeah, I think, well, just to to partially respond to James's point, I think the people who are making this, I wouldn't even call it an argument. I think it's more of an emotion, emotional response mm -hmm. wedded to populistic preconceptions, which is, the United States should be spending money here, not abroad, asterisks with the exception of supporting Israel. Um, they should be focused on the southern border, meaning the border with Mexico, not the the, the southern contact line in Zaporizhia. Uh, not that they even know where Zaporizhia is because they don't go that far. You know, James talks of an intellectual case to be made. There is an unreachable component within both yep. the American political system and the American electorate. Uh, they have spent years imbibing Tucker Carlson, the sort of fringe far-right MAGA element, which has convinced them, in the immortal words of Matt Gates, I don't care which guys in tracksuits run the government in Kiev, right? This is their their logic. This is their, 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 their sense of moral suasion. Um, however, I think that there is a case that can be made, and I'm already beginning to see some indications that it is being made, that it's what I might call the the sort of Kasparov conception of geopolitics, meaning as in Gary Kasparov, you know, look at this as an access of dictatorships. It doesn't have to be a properly, a proper access, although I think in this case, it, it's becoming one. Um, if you really care about the fortunes of the Middle East, which is to say, how goes Israel? in its war against Hamas. You have to look at the power brokers in Tehran who are, you know, responsible for arming and financing this terrorist proxy group in the Gaza Strip. And if you really want to engage with Iran, which is to say contain and deter it, which the Biden administration has now reluctantly begun to do as a result of this unforeseen catastrophe in the region, um, you have to also look at who its strategic partners are. Or in, in, in the case of Ukraine, who is its client, which is now Russia. Russia is manufacturing its own Shahid drones. Russia is probably looking to acquire Iranian cruise missiles for raining terror down upon Ukrainian cities and villages. Um, one thing which I hope we, we come to in this discussion is what the last several weeks has done to drive a wedge in the relationship between Israel yeah. and Russia and how that might impact Ukraine's fortunes in a positive way. I mean, I've, I've been joking on social media that forget about Zelensky traveling to Israel. Uh, Budanov should be on the first LL flight, you know, because this is this is going to be a growing strategic partnership, which I hope to see. And and if you listen to what Amir Whiteman, a Likud party member very close to Netanyahu, said on RT. I think he even, I mean, scandalized and 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 surprised the uh, very posh British presenter on the show by saying Israel will pay a price. I'm sorry, Russia will pay a price for supporting Hamas, and also the implicit notion being its relationship with Iran. These are things that can be used to convince or persuade what you might call kind of the MAGA adjacent fence sitters 
in the electorate and in Congress. You know, if you really want to make life difficult for the Iranians, if you really want to contain or, I mean, render strategically um, void actors such as Hezbollah, Hamas, and the Shia militia groups in Iraq and Syria, you can't just have some kind of campaign against Iran. You should also look at Russia, which is becoming a new center of gravity for these malevolent actors in the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah, no, Michael, I think that is the argument. We're going to dive deep into that in the second half when we look at James's excellent article uh, that, 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 that came out this week. But before we do, I wanted to kind of circle back to Ukraine a little bit about and going back to, to Zeluzhny's uh, article and um, an interview. I mean, we are what, what, what my takeaway from this was that we need to shift away from a focus on heavy weapons towards high tech precision. Right. That was the that was kind of my the, the big ask that he seemed to be making in that in that article. Michael, what would that mean and how politically feasible is it to make that shift? So he spends a lot of time talking about electronic warfare, um, as I mentioned earlier, the the use of almost, uh, you know, hobby store drones that have been weaponized and mass produced in Ukraine, largely through the the uh, ingenuity and and financial, um, you know, uh, streams of civil society more than even mm-hmm. the government. Right. I mean, I attended a, a conference in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, um, which was populated by all security force assistance personnel in the U.S. government who were giving presentations about how these first-person view drones that are being made in Ukraine and actually wreaking havoc on Russian um, mm. soldiers in the field, literally chasing them, chasing guys on motorbikes down the highway and then blowing them up. Um, that it's eighteen-year-old kids that are assembling these things uh, in makeshift warehouses or factories throughout Ukraine. Um, and you know, indeed, this has been the the one sort of game-changing element for uh, Ukraine, Ukraine's counteroffensive, such as it's made progress at all. Uh, I, I interviewed um, Dr. Anthony Tingle, who um, he teaches at the, I think, the Institute for the Future of Warfare is attached to the U.S. Air Force Academy. One of the only Westerners I've, I've talked to who has just returned from Robotnia, right, the, the main town that has been liberated mm-hmm. in the South. And he was describing a $13,000 drone of repeat use, by the way, by the Ukrainians uh, that they made in-house, which uses captured or confiscated Russian mortars, which the Ukrainians have an almost limitless supply thanks to what the Russians left behind in Kharkiv last year. They attach these mortars to the drone. The drone flies out about 10, 12 kilometers into deep inside enemy territory, drops the mortar on a command position, and blows the whole thing up, and the drone comes back. $13,000 piece of kit which is doing more damage to the Russians than I think quite a lot of more heavy conventional weaponry and, and ammunition that we have provided. So I think my my read of Zeluzhny's arguments there is, are, was that the United States and its partners ought to get a little more creative and innovative in their in how they mm. think of security assistance. You know, I mean, it's going to take six to, to nine months to train Ukrainian pilots on F-16s and then God knows how many, how many months to deliver the airframes. In that time, what will the Russians be able to do to build up their countermeasures and, and you know defensive positions? But manufacturing drones, doing these kinds of things is cheaper and easier. And I think that's where the focus ought to be going forward. Um, because we have, at this up to now, provided the Ukrainians with every piece of sophisticated kit that they have asked for, with a few exceptions. Uh, the Taurus cruise missile from Germany, the Hawkeye armored vehicle from Australia, but they're getting attackums, the cluster uh, uh, warhead version, the older version. They will probably get the unitary warhead version. I mean, the Republicans, the institutional Republicans in Congress are pushing for that. But we are providing these things out of our desperation at the lack of Ukrainian progress. And I think to James's point, we need to articulate what the strategy is here. Is it Russia cannot win this war, or is it no? Ukraine must be victorious, and we define victory as the liberation of 1991 borders. And yes, Crimea should be absolutely yes. in play. Oh, absolutely. That all to Zeluzhny's point that Crimea represents the most vulnerable position that the Russians have got in occupied. 
James, I know you want to jump in. I apologize. Just, you know, not to repeat my earlier points on technology, but I'll repeat something Zelensky has said quite often. This is not a Hollywood film. It's not a race to get to the finish and, and, and score a new record for how quickly you can run the course. Uh, it is a war to achieve political interests and defend political and strategic interests. And it's about what you need to do that. And the fact that it is taking longer than some people errantly hoped is not in, is not grounds for pessimism at all. It's it's what is it it's these are the necessities forced upon us by the nature of the conflict and the nature of the adversary. And saying I am not going to deal with bad weather because I don't like it is not an answer. It's a great point for us to segue into the, the, the second half of the program. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at what one of our guests described in a recent article as Putin's Gaza front. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining us from across the Atlantic, from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn, is the one and only James Scher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. And joining us from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, senior correspondent at Yahoo News and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also the author of the book ISIS Inside the Army of Terror and is currently working on a book about Russia's GRU. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on that platform that was once known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and now you can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical, so please do. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас с новым веком. So, James, you published a fascinating piece this week for the ICDS titled "Putin's Gaza Front," in which you looked at the interdependence of Russia's war against Ukraine and that between Israel and Hamas. In the article, you lay out Russia's current priorities in the uh, since the war, ruptured the rupturing of the West, of course, the war in Ukraine, ties with Iran, which the war has made an indispensable ally of Russia, sabotaging the U.S.-sponsored Saudi-Israeli Entente, and driving as many wedges possible between the collective West and the global South. And, and, and you argue that the Israeli-Hamas war appears to be serving these ends. And then you got my attention with this very, very provocative graph. You write whether or not Russia was complicit in the Hamas attack. It had every reason to be. Its 17-year relationship with Hamas goes well beyond Kurdish calls. The visits of the Hamas leadership and the head of, the, of its Politburo to Moscow in March and September this year were almost certainly about consultation rather than courtesy. If, as informed sources claim, Hamas and Iran began planning the operation one year ago, it is most unlikely that Russia was kept in the dark. And yet you also argue that this could all end up blowing up in Putin's face. Can you expand on all of that for our readers who have not, for those who have not read your your piece, and we'll put it in the show notes, and shame on you if you've not read it, Um and, 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 and yeah, if you could just expand on that, and I want to get kind of well, to jump in to talk about this larger issue. Just jump in with, an, with another point and then expand on it. Not for the first time, I'm very grateful that um, President Putin has expanded on my points. Because on the 30th of October, he gave a very significant speech at 
the Russian Federation Security Council. It's not the first time these things have been said, but it's the first time, I think, that they've been said so clearly by President Putin himself, and he makes all these connections. And the basic point that he has made is that the, the linking, the connection here is the system of Western hegemony and the efforts of this system to preserve itself at the expense of the vast majority of people in the world who are suffering from the so-called liberal rules-based order that we have created. And that certainly includes the Palestinians and it includes Russia because Russia, like China and Iran, are seen as correctly those countries who are in the vanguard of dismantling this hegemonic system. And that's the picture he lays out. Um, and there are a lot of attract there will be a lot of attractive sound bites in there for, for people who share these views uh, to reiterate and play with. So these quest these connections are there. The Going back to the U.S. discussion, one one point of ignorance in the states, and it would be interesting to 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 articulate, is that whereas in the states people see a choice, at least the critics of current policy see a choice between helping Ukraine and helping Israel. In Europe and in much of the world. And in Russia, the cause of helping Israel and helping Ukraine, it's the same cause. The Americans are the outliers. The Americans are the outliers here. They see a trade-off. In, in, in practice, these are... Con- well, I, I would say the Republicans are the outliers. The- right. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention one other... Uh, uh, I'll, I'll pull out one other comment I made in the article, which I expected you to highlight. That in the Russian mind... The um, for the Russians, their conclusion is the elimination of Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan from the map would be would mean the end of the West um, as we know it. These three things are connected, and I think in Beijing that is shared. So, the, circling back to a point Michael made in the first session you have three exceptionally committed and capable actors in the world um, who are collaborating in various ways to dismantle the entire system of international law and order, which has been established under the UN, which was then endorsed by Russia which was the basis for ending the Cold War, which I would say in its fundamentals goes back to the Treaty of Westphalia. And they're working together to do this. And I wager their chances of success as not small. Grim assessment. Michael, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, coming back to the earlier points about this sort of widening chasm between Israeli-Russian relations. You know, it's interesting that Putin had invested quite a lot in cultivating ties, particularly with Netanyahu. I mean, there there were posters all over Israel in the last election there of Bibi shaking Putin's hand because of the sizable Russian-Jewish diaspora in Israel. And I think now, and people have would disagree with me because they still see members of the sort of Bibi contingent getting up on Israeli TV and spreading conspiracy theories. Uh, the Ukrainians might have sent weapons to Hamas and all that. But I, I think that's sort of the the, the fumes of the old um, uh, uh, the old order, um, or, or rather the, the shards of the old order, because this is not sustainable. This relationship, I think, will now be severed almost irreparably. Uh, we had just the other day here in New York, Russia's Permanent representative to the United Nations, Nebenza, say that Israel does not have the right to defend itself because it is the occupying power, um, even though it was attacked on its own sovereign, internationally recognized 
territory. Um, I can give you another, a, a bunch of other examples I've seen recently. For instance, Bloomberg had an article today suggesting that in the last week, there have been a succession of Israeli airstrikes in Syria against Iranian-backed militia targets. Uh, and for the first time in several years, since 2015, when Russia directly intervened in the Syrian civil war, uh, the Israelis did not bother to notify the Russians that they were coming. There was no deconfliction. And that actually put Russian military assets in jeopardy of being hit in some of these airstrikes. Uh, I think this is an opportunity for the West to realize that whether we like it or not, and re remember, the American position with respect to Israel-Palestine goes back many decades. It has been a an insoluble problem for a variety of reasons, and yet a problem that continues to be insoluble, and everyone seems to want to have a crack at resolving it. There's a great deal of nuance in the American foreign policy establishment about how to engage with this issue. But as James is pointing out, if you look at what American adversaries have to say about this, it's all linked, right? This is the end of the unipolar world order, as per Mr. Putin's lights, and the rise of multipolarity. Uh, Moscow wants to be the place where you go before you go to Washington, D.C. to conduct business, particularly in this part of the world. I mean, I won't soon forget, you know, there's a lot of sort of mischaracterization about the the, the reason for Russia's in, in intervention in Syria. However, I think we can all agree there was an enormous amount of coordination between Iran and Russia for that. Qasem Soleimani, the dearly departed head of the Quds Force of the Revolutionary Guard, took a few trips to Moscow in the lead up to that intervention. And it was Vladimir Putin who saved Bashar al-Assad's bacon. And the United States allowed that to happen because fundamentally we didn't care about Syria, had no strategic value, according to the Obama administration. And all that mattered was entering into a, a nuclear arms deal with the Iranians. That was going to be the Obamacare for the second term of Obama's presidency as per his uh, strategic Communications Director Ben Rhodes. So I think what's happening now is the United States is beginning to realize that the conditions of a coming geostrategic conflict that doesn't just span, you know, all of Europe and won't just stop in the Middle East, but is going to affect the so-called global South. I mean, look at events in several African countries in the last mm -hmm. few months will certainly come to affect uh, the Far East. That the, the 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 lines, as it were, or the coalitions are being formed in real time, and we are playing catch up. We are being more reactive about who we select. I mean, we were never supposed to enter into a, a strategic partnership with Ukraine in the in the, with the way that we have done, but we've done so reactively and defensively. Mm -hmm. And I think now people are beginning to realize that, yeah, it, it's going to it's going to require a rethink of how America pursues its 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 goals. Abroad. It's almost it's almost as if the Russians are making that intellectual case for us. This intellectual well, they always have they have a habit of that doing that, don't they? James, I keep publish I keep publishing what they write, and and it's still it doesn't get through to people. Maybe now it will get through to people. I'm reminded of that wonderful scene, climactic scene in the in the in the film The Exorcist, <laughs> when the younger priest says. Well, there seem to be several voices, several of these people possessing uh, the older priests. No, there's only one. Right, and I, I am. I hope Michael is not being too optimistic when he says there is growing awareness that these three threats are connected, in essence, and in practice. Um, and 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 you know that could break the intellectual logjam that exists if that only if that realization takes place but uh, apart from that forgive me if i've said this before uh to repeat what one of my own mentors said many years ago who himself was a liberal british liberal he said the problem with liberals is that they they that they fail to understand that there is really an enemy. There, this whole view that, which is in the administration as well amongst critics, 
that there are negotiated solutions, that there is some kind of a middle here. With the, when it comes to the Ukraine war, there is no middle. <clears throat> now, people have understood, a lot of them, for a long time, but not everyone. When it comes to the war between Israel and those who believe in the annihilation of Israel, there is no middle. Um, there might be a middle with other actors, but not with those who are trying to annihilate you. This is very difficult for educated, reasonable, decent people in the West to accept. So I hope Michael is right and that it's becoming clearer. Well, no, I, I don't mean to undercut my own point, but I don't, I don't say that it's necessarily going to translate at the level of policy. But I think that there is a dawning awareness, particularly in the intelligence community. I mean, I, I mostly cover intelligence for a living. That um, you, you cannot sort of isolate these crises any longer because all roads lead back. Well, if it, you know, it might be a little hyperbolic to say all, all roads lead back to, to Moscow, but certainly, certainly the Russians never miss an opportunity to seize an opportunity to take the old uh, observation about the Palestinians and flip it on its head. I mean, they will look at this as uh, a windfall for themselves, meaning this crisis in, in the region, if the United States doesn't play it carefully, meaning walk and chew gum at the same time. Security assistance to Israel, fine, but security assistance to Ukraine, even more dramatically important right now. Because as James says, you know, what is the end game of this this the largest land war in Europe since World War II. Is it is it still going to be what Biden said in the early days of this invasion? Uh, get the Ukrainians to a position such that when they have to enter negotiations with the Russians, they're in, in you know in a, the most robust place they can be. I, I don't see that as being a very viable policy because you need only to look at what the Russians are resolved to do, which is keep going at minimum hang on to the territory that they currently occupy and that use any kind of shortfall in assistance to Ukraine or any kind of geopolitical distraction from the Ukraine crisis as an opportunity to take more territory. I mean, I, I fundamentally believe if if they see the, 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 the chance to, to stack Kiev again, they're going to take it. Uh, there's not going to be any treaty or piece of paper sign that's going to convince Putin to give up on what he has seen as inextricably bound up with his legacy as a Russian leader. Yeah, um, we've we've made the case and James made the case compellingly in, in his article that Russia clearly benefits from the conflict in the Middle East now. Michael, from your reporting and what does your gut tell you? You, you? you follow both of these regions closely. Do you think Russia had foreknowledge of this attack on October 7th? James seemed to very carefully in a very carefully worded paragraph, uh, I would say, seem to suggest that they might have. They might have. I mean, I think that the first question or the first order priority is to determine whether Iran had a foreknowledge, B, any involvement in the planning uh, of this. I know the Wall Street Journal has reported that they did. The administration um, for called water on this, suggesting our intelligence has the Iranians being caught off guard and being and very surprised by this. I find it a little hard to believe it does strain credulity that Hamas can have planned such a bold and intricate operation going back over a year without at minimum buy your leave from their chief patron and their military sponsor. Uh, and if we can establish to any degree of satisfaction that the Iranians had this awareness or had this involvement, then the question becomes, did they not share it with the Russians? Uh, I mean, I can, I can give you from my own reporting, um, a little bit of an indication of what I mean about how things kind of are interconnected in this way. So one of the reasons that the attackums debate seemed to stall for so very long um, is there was some degree of U.S. intelligence which suggested that if we were to send these ballistic missiles to Ukraine, that the Iranians would send their cruise missiles to Russia. So you see, I mean, mm -hmm. and, and, and what, what, what seemed to end that discussion was the fact that um, 
the British and the French sent Storm Shadow and Scalp cruise missiles, mm-hmm. and the Iranians didn't pull the trigger on their end. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it, it, it comes back to this issue of, okay, can can we, as, a, as the world's only real superpower, um, manage two crises at once and also see them as intertwined with one another? Right. I mean, if I'm if I'm sitting in the White House now, number one priority, holding together America's traditional relationships with the Gulf Arab states, which, by the way, uh, a lot of people, I think, got ahead of their skis on this, thinking that the Abraham Accords were going to come unraveled. The Saudis were going to do something deeply destabilizing. Actually, to the contrary, the leadership in these countries is I mean, they have a a tendency to give a lot of um, kind of vitriolic commentary to Christian Amanpour on CNN. But when it comes to policy, it's still the status quo. I mean, the Saudis have given these indications, the Emiratis have given these indications, and the Jordanians are now too busy fielding rockets from the Houthis in Yemen to really worry about severing relationship with Israel. So that's priority number one. Priority number two is, as I say, drive a wedge between the Israelis and the Russians as best you can. The Russians right now um, are defending a genocidal terrorist organization and and indeed characterizing it as a viable political organization. Use that. You know, I, use that to get the Israel. I mean, you know, I, I keep hearing in Kyiv that Gur, Ukrainian military intelligence, is is sort of the, the rising star of of the world of sort of shadow ops and it's the new Mossad. Well, how better to become the new Mossad than to take some courses from the old one? You know, I mean, this is the relationship I would try to be fostering at the moment. Between ah, that that that, that that's interesting. And like you know, right. uh, yes, go ahead, James. Look, the Hamas Israel relationship goes back to two thousand six. I personally, um. In the absence today of what we now call, by New York Bar Association standards, conclusive evidence, I personally find it almost inconceivable that uh, entities, namely Hamas, Iran, and Russia, that share a common interest in... um, overturning Western interests in the Middle East and elsewhere um, that talk to one another, and I mean nasty people talking to one another, over a long period of time, particularly in the last two years, if you're looking at Hamas-Israel connections and who goes where and everything else, that given all of these things, that someone either in Tehran uh, or in Gaza City, would decide, oh, we can't tell the Russians about this. I do not think that Iran or anyone else somehow manipulated Russia into scuppering its relationship with Israel. I think that in Moscow, a perfectly logical decision was made that the relationship with Israel had to be sacrificed. The relationship between Russia and Germany has been appreciably more important than the relationship between Russia and Israel. It arose for circumstantial situational reasons that made sense in a particular moment. The principal actors on both sides, Putin and Netanyahu, shared a similar culture of cynicism for different reasons. It worked for a time. Uh, The Ukraine war has totally transformed Russia's priorities. And priorities that Russia has invested in for 20 years, like Germany, like energy preeminence in Europe, we can add a whole range of other things, have been sacrificed on the altar of winning this war in Ukraine. And I think a, I think a clear decision was made in Moscow that this relationship, it was time now to sacrifice this relation. There's no enigma at all from my perspective. Well, if we are if we are building a RICO case here, which is kind of sort of what we're doing, a couple other data points. New York Times had a piece today about how the disinformation campaigns uh, regarding the, the, the Israel-Hamas war 
being promoted by China, Russia, and Iran are remarkably similar and are supporting each other. I would highly recommend that piece in the Times today. I'll include it in the show notes. And then, I can't believe we haven't gotten to this yet, the incident at the Dagestan airport, which was pretty remarkable um, and pretty, pretty damn disturbing. And you're not going to convince me that a crowd that size can plow its way through airport security in any airport. Uh, not to mention an airport in Russia without the so, some some collusion with the authorities is 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 is, uh, is, is unlikely. So, I, I mean, when we put all these data points together, I mean, Michael, how did you interpret that that thing at the airport in Dagestan? And that was that was terrifying. No, it was. It, it was sort of a, a kind of farcical Oprah. replay of of Entebbe. I mean, they, they literally were trying to get aboard the plane and take hostages looking for Jews in the turbine. I mean, it was that something out of Borat. I mean, very embarrassing even for Pogramas. But um, I thought what even more remarkable than that instance, um, I mean, you know, Russia historically has not needed much encouragement to try and locate and and persecute Jews when they feel that the time for doing so is, is, is upon them. But um, even more interesting was the official government response to this. Mm-hmm. Who did the Kremlin blame for this pogrom? <laughs> Two United parties. <laughs> well, first the Ukrainians, but really because Ukraine has no agency or capability to do this, the Western intelligence services. And the reason for this is there is a, a, a telegram channel uh, that is dedicated to Dagestan, which it is true has some relationship with the Ukrainian authorities and was used to try and foment uh, anti-mobilization protests, because as we know, I mean, most of the people who are getting called up to be sent to the fronts in Ukraine are not ethnic Russians. They're the minority populations, right? Including Dagestanis. However, um, the FSB telegram channels were ridiculing this notion that the Ukrainians or the Americans had anything to do with this. Um, so evidence against interest, even, even the FSB is saying right. the Kremlin is full of shit when it comes to this, right? But again, it, it comes to this, to this very matter. Why were these anti-Semitic riots taking place in the first place in protest to Israel? And lo and behold, it turns out these were the, 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 the flight from Tel Aviv that had landed in Kachala was not even full of Jews. It was full of people who had gone to Israel to take life-saving medical interventions they could not obtain in Russia. So the whole thing kind of fell apart very quickly. And yet the, the, the principal culprit has got to be the perfidious West, right? There's no, there's no internal agency uh, in in Russia, um, but yeah, I mean it's 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 quite extraordinary. And beyond that, I, I can point to there's other little back squeaks of provocation taking place all the time in Paris. Um, I think two Moldovans were arrested for spray painting stars of David on the house houses of of Jews, and they told the French authorities that an individual in Russia had told them to go out and do this. Now, if you know your KGB active measures history, you know that in the 19, I think, 50s, uh, the Soviets would recruit neo-Nazis, send them to West Berlin to Mm -hmm. desecrate synagogues and Jewish cemeteries in order to gin up this notion that uh, the West German government was just a recrudescence of Nazis, right? So would I put it past the Russians to, like I said before, never waste an opportunity to seize an opportunity. People are going after Jews. The kinds of people who are going after Jews see Moscow as a either potential or already existing ally in the war against Western imperialism and this kind of neoliberal international order that must be rent asunder. It's well within their interest to kind of stoke this sort of chaos and anarchy, isn't it? Oh, you mentioned the key. You mentioned the key point, which is an interest in chaos. The, the mainstream Western view is that chaos makes purposeful action impossible. The Leninist view, which is Putin's view, is that chaos is simply a medium through which our, in which our interests have to be advanced, and it can be a very encouraging medium. And if there is to be chaos, then we would rather create it than suffer from it. Now, one of the benefits of doing all of this and all the delirious, now the delirious um, uh, vituperative um, 
the, the state television programs about um, the crimes of Israel and Hamas and everything else, uh, I think, is precisely to encourage those people in Europe who have forgotten what a pogrom is and uh, inspire them to conduct a few of their own. Um, you know, don't we were having uh, today in ICTS a very good discussion, as we do period as we do all the time, about Russia and the global south. And uh, I just came back from a week in London, and I said, "Look, we have to understand the global south is here." When you're living in London, when you're living in Paris, you are living with a lot of the sentiments that exist in parts of the global south. The Russians know this. And they also refer very openly to um, destabilizing the West as part of their own, uh, one of their own core interests, destabilizing internal conditions in the West as a means of advancing their interests. Uh, you, you don't have to make this up. It's, it, it, it's there in analytical papers and official statements. No, it's, you it know, everybody, everybody reads The Sword and the Shield, you know, the, the great Vasily Mitrokin archive, but they never read the sequel, which is The World Was Going Our Way. And it was the Soviet intervention in the Third World, KGB active measures designed to, to destabilize or to, to cleave any kind of relationship of the West and the non-aligned movement or African nations, et cetera. Essentially, I, I hate this term and I'm partially responsible for it becoming a cliche, but I have to use it because I know no alternative, weaponizing anti-colonialism. Um, even before this latest crisis in the region, what did we see Mr. Prigozhin doing um, apart from running a mercenary corps in Ukraine and Syria? finding white supremacists and neo-Nazis from Europe, sending them to African countries to act as election monitors, quote unquote, in, in reality, what were they sent there to do? To push pan-Africanist ideology uh, in order to keep these countries out of the British, French, and American orbits. I mean, it sounds like, like a Marx Brothers film taking racists, sending them to Africa to push anti-racist uh, ideology, but that was a, a Russian active measure, and it, it was largely happened under the radar. Um, I reported on it; a few other people reported on it. But this this predates what we're seeing now. This predates even the full scale invasion of Ukraine. So again, have, we come back to this interconnectedness that we were referring to earlier. You have to smoke stronger stuff than my Nicaraguan cigars to really understand this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we, we seem to be bumping up against the end here. I'm mindful of the clock, mindful of everybody's time. Do either of you have any last thoughts before we wrap it up for the week? Uh, just the point you mentioned, which I didn't come back to, which wasn't my article. Um, Putin is, I don't see him as master strategist. At times, I mean, of course, he's the only strategist in town because uh we live in a world where very few people really understand what strategy means, and at least he does. He's a master of generating lose-lose outcomes. And if we end up with a war between the United States and Iran, Russia stands to lose, I think, uh, as much as it has to gain. For one thing, the tap of weapons supplies to Ukraine that that Iran uh, comes from Iran will be very difficult to sustain in those conditions. Uh, there will be other issues that Russia can't manage. The Russia's big bluff will be called, which is the fact that outside Ukraine now, it has stripped its military power largely to the bone. Russia has no spare military power to deploy in a Middle East conflict. The United States is now is now is now returning to the Middle East in earnest. Why are there two carrier battle groups in the Eastern Med? Because the threat from Iran was that serious. This makes it clear the United States is remains the indispensable power, um, and Russia can do nothing about it. So. There is, Putin is a high-risk player. 
And this is carrying on. And if we have strategic thinkers on our side who understand his game, and if we have a bit of courage, uh, as well as the strategy, um, I think we, we could turn this to our advantage, but I don't think it's going that way. Michael, your last thoughts. Yeah, I think to, to complement what James just said, you know, I was having a conversation with a, a longtime Russia watcher who said, you know, it's very funny about this current state of play and all of the strategic blunders that Putin has walked into is that, you know, the old Soviet mentality would have looked at a guy like Putin and thought he had been recruited by the CIA because he all he's doing is dismantling, you know, Russian interests brick by brick, um, or at least giving us the opportunity to help him do so even further. Um, and I do think that if the United States looks at, as I say, you know, not just one part of the world, but every part, and I know there's a great interest in countering Russian influence in Africa and other global South nations, it, it really needs to understand that if Russia is allowed to declare any form of victory in Ukraine, I mean, and I'm talking anything other than a complete and utter strategic defeat. We will not succeed in doing the things that we would like to do outside of Europe, particularly in the, in the Middle East. And I mean, with respect to Iran, Iran is not reg as regionally powerful as it appears to be. And the reason that it appears to be so is because we have also made grievous errors that have allowed it to expand and project its power. I mean, it used to have one masterful proxy in the region called Hezbollah. Now it has a consortium of them, uh, militias spanning across Syria and Iraq, directly a result, frankly, of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq, which is still, I mind, one of the greatest strategic disasters of U.S. foreign policy. Um, but you notice, you notice, and I unfortunately, I because it's my job, I have to do these things. I had to listen to Hassan Nasrallah's speech, at least the first two thirds of it today. Um, and what's very interesting about it is three cheers for resistance, but leave me out of it. You know, Hezbollah is not going to drag Lebanon into another war with Israel, which means that, of course, Iran does not want to do that at the moment. And also, who is the real enemy here? This is to James's point about the sort of how our enemy perceives this sort of coalition on the other side. The real enemy is in Israel. That's the Zionist entity. That's a higher level. The real enemy is the United States. And that is the reason that you see drones and in some cases rockets being fired at American air bases in Syria and Iraq by these other militias that are can afford to do so because they've been doing it for a while and they know the retaliation is going to be the United States bombs an empty warehouse in the Jazeera somewhere, right? It, it pays to start thinking in, in sort of grander terms than I think we have been and not to be opportunistic or even hemispheric in our view of these things because we are, we're, we're, we're entering into a new phase, I think, of history. Um, and even Biden said this himself, to, to give the president credit. He says, what happens in the next two or three years could very well determine the next 60. I think he's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's 1948 in many, many, many ways right now, if not 1938. Um, and on that note, we shall wrap it up because unfortunately that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn has been the one and only James Sher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book our diplomacy and soft coercion, Russia's influence abroad. And joining us from New York City has been veteran journalist Michael Weiss, a senior correspondent at Yahoo News and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also the author of the book ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror, and is currently working on a new book about Russia's GRU. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion and for making me and our listeners a whole lot smarter. Also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas, home of the Texas Rangers, who are now World Series champions. Congratulations to the Texas Rangers. 
Jareer Rahman is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and working water throughout our discussion. Jareer also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to the Power of the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on that platform that was formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and you can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. Until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.